Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of interviews with spiritually awakening people. I've done over 430 of them by now, and if this is new to you and you'd like to check out previous ones, go to the um, past interviews menu on batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P, and you'll see all the previous ones there. If this is not new to you, then you're probably tired of hearing me say that, but I say it every week for the sake of <laughs> new people. <laughs> um, this whole project is made possible by the support of appreciative listeners and viewers, and if you appreciate it and feel like supporting it, there's a PayPal button on every page of the site, and we really appreciate those who have been supporting it. My guest today is Paul Morgan Summers. He's over in the UK. He doesn't have an extensive bio that he sent me, but from what I gather from what he sent, he likes drinking tea, playing football, which we call soccer, and talking about the ocean. Does that pretty well sum it up, Paul? Yeah, although I have uh, moved on to coffee recently. Oh, you're getting Americanized, I see. Uh, yeah, it's, <laughs> it happens. <laughs> <laughs> One of the reasons, aside from the fact that he really does love playing soccer, that soccer is significant here, or football, I should say, is that um, he was playing it once when he was, what, about 15, Paul? Yes. You were quite young. And all of a sudden, he popped into an experience of what he likes to call the ocean, and I'm sure everyone will get the metaphor, you know, a sense of unboundedness. So let's start there, Paul. Was this completely unprecedented in your life? Did you have any sort of prior interest in or knowledge of any such thing? Or were you just an ordinary kid and this came out of the blue? Yeah, just an ordinary kid that loved playing football or soccer. So and I was just training outside the back of my parents' house because um, I'd been given an opportunity to go and play football professionally. So I was just training mm -hmm. most days. Mm -hmm. And one day after training out the back, I just had an impulse to go and sit down. And I sat on some steps behind mum and dad's house. And then, well, I suppose everything changed. There was a sense of a, <laughs> although I didn't have any of these words then, it was just what happened. Right. It was just a full on experience mm -hmm. with no thought process. But it was something that was new to my body. I'd never experienced anything like that before. But it was now I can use the words like a rapture, like, and it felt, uh, you know, a, a very energetic um, shock to my body. Was it um, frightening at all, or or was it enjoyable? It was like being hit by again. I used that word ocean after, but it was like being hit by a wave, mm. and it it was in complete control of what happened. There was no time to be frightened. It was just a full-on rush, as it were. Yeah. And then I had, from that point, every time I sat, something else happened. It just started a whole period of experiences, really. That's interesting. The reason I asked whether it was frightening was that one time when I was a kid, probably I was younger than 10, I had a high fever. And I had this experience of huge vastness. And sometimes it would also, it would seem to be both vast and, and infinitesimally small at the same time, and also infinitely heavy and infinitely light. And I just kind of sat there with my fever experiencing this thing, and it was awesome, but it was a little scary, too, because it was so, so big. Yeah, there were many other experiences which had more of a, 
an element of fear to them mm. or an, an element of basically my brain swearing to itself thinking can my body cope with this mm. it was uncertain about it so you're saying that from the age of 15 when this first happened it became an, an ongoing thing different yes. phases different, different experiences. experiences for about I don't know um, 16 18 months uh -huh. just different experiences um, like on a daily basis really did it make it difficult to function and go to school and things like that well I wasn't that interested in school all I wanted to be was a football player and for chasing a little round football around a field it wasn't that complicated <laughs> <laughs> so um, there was such a passion into me I just loved playing football mm -hmm. but over that time that love of chasing after a football never went and it's still with me now sure um, even though your but, knee doesn't cooperate yeah the yeah the right knee but slowly this well the sense of identity was changing who I thought I was and what I wanted to be to be a professional football player and to make lots of money and be famous and have girls chasing me <laughs> all that seemed to lose its meaning really uh, have this image of, of have this image of you chasing a ball and girls chasing you kind of going down the <laughs> field you know? <laughs> yeah i'd have probably been at that time at 15 more interested in the football but <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's yeah there were just loads of experiences hmm. which changed my the whole concept of who i was we have plenty of time so tell us a few that you know you feel were significant i mean maybe in retrospect now you don't think they were significant they were just sort of phenomena that happened but people might find it interesting to, um, to hear a little bit of what you went through i think it is i can i never i was always reticent to speak about them because people got quite hooked into them mm -hmm. And there's, there's a feeling that it was just something that was just specific to my physiology, my character. Yeah. Because uh, the characters I've met over the years, who I say have got wet, it's it's a quite a different story to to them all, really. So I have a sense that if there's a thousand characters that have got wet, it'll be a, a different story for each of them. It's um, true, but there are some commonalities, you know, I mean, yes, and sometimes people if they're if this kind of thing happens to them out of the blue and they have no context for it or anything to compare it with or anyone to talk to, they think there's something wrong with them. They go running to doctors, you know, they think they're crazy or whatever. And so it can be reassured. In fact, just this morning, I got a message on Facebook from somebody that had been having all kinds of spiritual things going on and and hadn't known what to do or what it was and then she discovered this interview show and and breathed the sigh of relief to see that there's so many other people were having things like this and that it was happening all over the world so it, it can help help people to know you know what others are going through it's, it's for my for me it has happened quite a long time ago yeah, so I, I forget I, to be honest I forget a lot of it yeah. until somebody mentioned something and then my brain remembers it <laughs> uh, but I can remember times of, of thinking that should I speak to my mum and dad mm -hmm. but again I didn't have words for it I didn't know how to frame it how to put it into words um, and I also had that although there was a um, 
often a fear of what was going on. There was such a, a sense of wonderment underlying it mm-hmm. that, that that was stronger than the fear. Yeah. So the fear never took over strong enough to make me go and speak to mum and dad, you know, you know, and try to explain or put into words what I was having immense difficulty to find words for. Did you um, have any friends that you could speak to or just pretty much kept it no, to yourself? It was just myself and it was, you know, there was no internet back then or right. Google, whatever. Yeah. So it was... I think that sense of wonderment just carried my character through, through all those experiences. Because mm-hmm. um, a lot of them are very, felt very energetic within the body and later on I learned I read books about this term called Kundalini and everything, yeah. which all then seemed to make sense. Mm-hmm. Um, the the sense of uh, they're all energetic experiences, visually and auditory, and some of the most beautiful were that there was a often just beautiful sense everywhere um, going about through life. Yeah. Uh, and that was one of the most beautiful, funnily enough. The scents were extraordinary. Scents, um, you mean? Smells, you mean? Yes, literally smells. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, and the sense of... What kind the, of smells? I mean, smells like... Would your normal sense of smell be more acute? Like you'd walk by some roses and they were ever so much more aromatic? Or was it more like you were... Sp- Picking up on things that oh, maybe only dogs would ordinarily smell. <laughs> yes, yeah, I didn't recognise. Huh. There were scents, and and they were, um, they would flood my body. Mm. So that although they were like nasal, it seemed to flood the whole body. Interesting. Uh, and they, they all all these things, whether they were visual or whatever, all seemed to have an energetic element to them all. Yeah. And perhaps brain processed it, some of them, you know, visually, some more auditory, um, trying to make sense of an energetic movement mm-hmm. in the body, or it, slowly the sense of there being an edge to this body was just diminishing as well. And the sense of identity felt more extended through time and space. So it was having ex- seeing things before they happened and and things like that and being able to to move and not located to the body for a while. What's that? You mean some kind of out-of-body thing? Well, yeah, but it wasn't a sense of a something moving out of another something called a body. Right. Um, there was no... There began to become a sense of a, like a movement, but nothing moving. So there was no journey in any... Most things I'm going to say sound very contradictory. I do apologize. No, I totally understand what you're saying. I think most people <laughs> no, listening I, will understand also. I mean, this stuff okay. is paradoxical by nature, you know? Yeah, the very nature of it, conceptually, is an utter paradox. Yeah. And yet, simultaneously, it is so simple that I can't find words for it, which can be frustrating sometimes, but that's the way it is. Yeah. I sometimes just feel like a drunken character. But when he gets poked, I just sing drunken songs and chat drunken words. And they're all paradoxical and contradictory. But there's such a wonderment in a, for this character, I love in them, that I can't help it. Yeah. Well, if the rest of us are comparably intoxicated, then I think we'll all be on the same 
wavelength and <laughs> understand what you're saying. <laughs> and incidentally, this thing about the, the subtle sense, S-C-E-N-T-S, and, uh, you know, and knowing things at a distance and all that stuff, the spiritual literature is full of that kind of thing. And it's, it's often brushed off in contemporary non-dual circles as being irrelevant or illusory or a, a distraction or, or things like that. But, you know, I think, personally, I think that refined capabilities and capacities are part and parcel of an overall spiritual unfoldment or development, and they shouldn't be overemphasized. But at the same time, they shouldn't be dismissed. Um, it's just they should be understood for what they are and just taken in stride and we, we move along. You know, but that kind of thing is bound to happen to people. And, and so it needs to be put in the proper context, I think. Yeah, for sure. It, it, it's just what happens. And yeah, it's, it happens. It's, it's normal. Part of the, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's part it, of life. Yeah, it's, un, it's unusual, but it's, theoretically, there could be a society in which that kind of thing was commonplace and nobody would think yeah. twice about it. But, there, and, but again, there's, there's such a, a gorgeous juice in those things, but also simultaneously that same juice is in having a cup of tea. Yeah. And it's, it's not that they have to be significant or, or not. It, like drinking a cup of tea, it's so free, it doesn't need to have a significance. And so those experiences can be stunningly beautiful but also they don't need to have a significance. It's just freedom expressing itself that way, really. Yeah. Um, so there's no need to reject them or accept them. They are just what they are. Right. Well, that's kind of an acceptance. I mean, I guess maybe I use the word significance, and I didn't mean to imply that they're more significant than having a cup of tea, but they're not irrelevant either. They're, it's just part of human experience when some sort of opening like this happens. And so we, we don't make too much of a fuss about them, nor, nor do we reject them. They're just like, oh, this is nice. There's a term in Louisiana called a lanyap. And if you buy something in the store, they throw something, a little something extra in the package as a little gift, and that's called a lanyap. So this is like a lanyap. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard that. Yeah. That's beautiful. Uh, yeah, I, it has that sort of feel. Yeah, yeah. That's that surprise, that wonderment about them. In one way, it's just very childlike mm -hmm. and very simple. Well, we're going to fill in a lot more in, in your timeline, but um, did that stuff stop or does that still go on and you just take it in stride? So, some of them have carried on. Mm -hmm. um, most of them, the major, like, strong energetic things all stopped mm -hmm. when for want of a better word, that ocean. Over that time, this character became aware that there was this energy, I called it energy at the time, which was everything. It was the football I was chasing. It was my mum walking into the room, um, the people I was competing against. It was the goalpost. It was everything. But there was still a sense of a, of a pull experiencing that ocean, that luminosity. And then, although this sounds like a time thing, it's, it's, it's not a time thing. That luminosity was just self-evidently self-luminous. 
and there wasn't a separate something experience in the ocean. There was just ocean, mm-hmm. and that, that luminosity, so like that, never went. But those dramatic experiences in the body all calmed down, mostly speaking. Yeah. But still, still things happen on on a daily basis, which are uh, visual and energetic. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're just matter of fact. Yeah. You know, I, it's not, there's nothing. Sometimes people ask me about them, but <laughs> I, I I forget. Honestly, I don't think about them until I get prodded. Mm. In my understanding, what happens is that I mean, this is lived through a body. I mean, you you mentioned that it's a, the luminosity sort of living itself, but it's it's living itself by virtue of there being a nervous system that can you know, be a, a conduit or a, an instrument for that living, you know. And that nervous system has a lot of adjustment to undergo when a big energetic opening like this happens. And it can take years for the adjustment to pretty much complete itself. And you can go through all kinds of stuff that seems intense as it's doing so. But then when that adjustment has largely been made, the intensity and the contrast and the drama seem to really diminish, right? And it just becomes more normal and matter-of-fact and, and so on. But you're still living it through a nervous system, and that nervous system is still subject to change and adjustment and whatnot. So, and and it's, it's still a sensing instrument. So you're still going to be having I, s- experiences. Do you, do you resonate sure. with what it is? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And it's a constantly changing experience. Exactly, yeah. Constantly changing <laughs> con- experience of something which doesn't change. <laughs> Yeah, this is the power. It's constantly juicy. Right. And it's, it's freedom, so it can appear in whichever blinking way it wants. Mm-hmm. And that could be dramatic, or it could be quite calm. It could be quite constructive or quite destructive in certain ways. Hmm. How would it be uh, destructive? In the sense, when I've met characters over the years, It's been a little bit for their nervous system, like a, a bit like a bomb going off, in that it's caused a lot of, for at least a period of time, especially living in the sort of lives, running a business in the family. Yeah. It's, it's, called, it's been problematic for their characters to assimilate and adjust. Yeah. Uh, for some characters, it seems to be a lot smoother. But for a reasonable amount of characters, it's it's problematic and can be quite messy. So in that sense, destructive yeah. from, from the, the status quo of how life was. Yeah, I run into that a lot. I mean, I hear from people who have had to stop working or, you know, who, who you know, I mean, in fact, there's one guy who, you know, he, he, he was a carpenter. He is, a, maybe still is, I don't know, but he, he, li- he might be listening to this interview, and he liked nothing better than sitting on the couch watching football, American football, having a beer, you know, and I wasn't interested in spirituality. And then this big, huge awakening happened, and uh, it really kind of knocked him, through him for a loop, you know. I mean, it, it, he, hadn't been a, he hadn't ever been able to function the same after that. <laughs> yeah, and no, not just for the character, but for his family, for his, you know, nearest and dearest, for his business colleagues or whatever, it yeah. can be problematic. In that sense, it can be... 
sometimes I feel like but unless the itch is really strong in the character when they come and chat with me, it's I tend to steer them away from it a little bit. If they have a choice. You know, yeah, I mean, yeah. sometimes it's I guess, like it just takes over and they, they couldn't steer it away if they wanted to. Yeah, for sure. But it's uh, like you. It's a it's a dance that happens when they come. Yeah. Sometimes push you push your way and see whether they still want to come forward. And I think I remember speaking to an old monk years and years ago, and he said, "Well, that's why they they used to suggest that people go into a monastery. It, it, it is easier to handle the side effects in a monastery than for a householder." It is, it can be, at least, if you're cut out for that. In this day and age, there seems to be a kind of a, a wave of awakenings taking place in the world, primarily among householders, people who don't want to live in monasteries. And there's been a lot of talk over the recent years about embodiment and integration. And, you know, people want this experience and sometimes they have no choice but to have this experience, but they also want to live human lives. And so there's been a lot of discussion in spiritual circles about, you know, how do we integrate this? How do we hold down a job and, you know, support a family and all this in, in the midst of this, this whole thing, which can actually be quite powerful. From my character, they're not different things. Mm -hmm. You know, people use these words, form and the formless. Again, they're not two things. Yeah. You know, it's about juice, it's about living, it's about drinking a cup of tea, <laughs> it's about hugging, it's about chasing a football, it's about everything. There's nothing excluded. So for you, there was no difficulty in acclimating to this? Or was uh, there? I mean, you, you actually went into a there, monastery for five there, there years. Was, yeah, there was... There was I think for my body there was a, di a difficulty to begin with, just physiologically. Adjustment, yeah. There were an adjustment. And then I was very lucky I found this this monastery. Yeah, tell the story of that. So you were like, you were a kid and you were up there and wherever you lived and, you know, you didn't know what the heck this was. And, and then somebody told so you I, there was this big bookstore in London and you thought, I'll go down yeah, there and see if there's anything in yeah. that bookstore about this. <laughs> there's a, and I'm still so fond, there's a, a bookstore called Foils and I was told it's the biggest bookstore in the world. Mm -hmm. And I think it was at one time. Yeah, now it's Amazon. So I, I put, yeah, now Amazon, yeah, taking over the world. <laughs> so I jumped on a train and went to London because I live in a very quiet rural place back then. So there was no bookshops locally or anything. So I jumped and by that time my character had fallen in love with this ocean, for want of better words. So I just went and just walked into Foyle's bookshops and asked, do you have any books on the ocean? <laughs> I thought, yeah. this is mad. They say, yeah, Jacques Cousteau has written some. <laughs> yeah, so I, I can't remember, but I, I was there for a while looking through books. And then somebody said to me, there was a bookshop quite local to it. Uh, called Watkins Bookshop mm -hmm. and Watkins has been there since 1895 or something and it's full of esoteric books and world religions books and I went there and I, I picked up uh, some books called the Upanishads and in there I read, I was reading and I and there were some words in there that seemed to echo this ocean 
And uh, there was a, a sticker in the back of the book um, supplied by the Vedanta Centre and and the address just outside London. So I went I went home and uh, I shortly went back up to the, and visit this place. And uh, I was taken to see the, the head abbot. And he just said, well, something very natural has happened to you, but it would be a good idea if you want to, to come and live here for a while. And I thought, great. <laughs> so um, I left the football uh, and, and <laughs> I put a little um, note on my kitchen table to mum and dad and I'm just gone off to this place. Don't worry, everything's fine. <laughs> Obviously, they freaked out a little bit. Were well, you like 17 uh, years old or something at that point? Yeah, late 16, as I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. all I knew was this football boy. Yeah. And suddenly he was going to a... Because they weren't religious or, you know, they were business people. <laughs> so God, God only knows what they, they thought. Um, but I, I jumped on the train I went and I, I went to this monastery and was there for about five years in total. But it was gorgeous for me because living in such a rural area, I hadn't met people from other cultures or, or whatever. The only foreign people I'd met were English people, because um, I come from Wales. Uh, oh, and so the, the people from the Welsh consider the English to be foreigners, do they? Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> the English occupied our country. Yeah, that and Scotland. Uh, yeah, and, Ireland. and when, we play them, when we play them in sport, it's serious. Mm. It, be it becomes religious for the Welsh. Okay. It, we have to beat the English. <laughs> uh, but anyway, uh, the, the gentleman in charge was a medical doctor before he became a monk. So when the Dalai Lama fled Tibet as a, a youngster, he, he was sent by the Indian government to go and receive him or find him and receive him because he was a monk and a medical doctor. So he ticked two boxes to go and um, check him out and make sure everything's okay and all the politics involved. So he moved in, in those sort of circles. So he used to organize, I don't know if it still happens, what they called interreligious dialogue between world religious delegations. Oh, there's a lot of that still happening. I don't know about the okay. Vedanta Society, but there's a parliament of world religions that, you know, attracts over 10,000 people when they hold it. Yeah. Okay. So in this, in this monastery, all these delegations used to, you know, Buddhist and um, Islamic and all, all sorts used to come and Christian. So I was able to meet people from all around the world with all different um, truths, as it were, and hear them discussing and arguing. Um, and lots of the characters, you know, some of the characters were just beautiful, some of them were just crazy. So, like life, really, yeah, yeah. you know. These are no different. You get the mad ones, the neurotic ones, the sweet ones, no different. And so, but I was able to meet people. It's like traveling the world, it felt, but I didn't leave the monastery. Um, so I was fortunate enough to speak speak to like the Dalai Lama and bishops and archbishops and hey, maybe so you could set up an interview with me for, for with the Dalai Lama huh yeah <laughs> <laughs> hey um so you are a bit of a child prodigy or something uh pro was, would, that, would that be the word you know I mean here you were only 17 16 years old with this level of experience that a lot of old monks would die for 
And um, were you very vocal about what you were experiencing and living? And was there, did they make a fuss about you? Or was there some envy? Or did you kind of keep it quiet and just kind of no. do your thing and wash the dishes? And, the, you know? Yeah, when I arrived, the old monk said something very natural has happened to you. Mm -hmm. It'd be good for you to come here, but don't talk about it. Okay, good. And I didn't. Yeah. You know, he was kind enough to let me come, so I followed his, his rule. Yeah. Yeah, so sometimes if I got really prodded, it would pop out. Mm. Um, uh, and there was an instance, I often tell this story, but there was a uh, an interreligious meeting on mysticism. Uh -huh. So the, the Vatican sent a delegation um, of, and one of them in the delegation was a hermit. And it'd been the first time he'd come out of his hermitage in about 30 years, but he was ordered by the by his seniors to come to this um, meeting between different religious traditions to talk about mysticism. And he was Italian. His English was okay, but not brilliant. Uh, but I was looking after him because um, uh, there was about six of us lads in the monastery and we looked after these various delegations. And... Um, I chatted to him about the ocean, and on and but he didn't say much, and I thought it was his, his poor Italian. But on the, on the last evening before he he left, he said he said Paul, I was bringing him some tea in his room, and because uh, he had a history of Christ appearing to him, mm. um, and he's and he just said to me one day he said Christ appeared to me when I was praying, and he and he walked into my body and we both disappeared. Mm. So I know what you're talking about, but please don't tell anybody. <laughs> and he said it in such a sweet way, just a childlike way. He was just happy to go back to his hermitage and, and be there, basically. He didn't want any trouble from his superiors or whatever. But it was such a, for me, a gorgeous moment when he said it. Yeah, that's sweet. Speaking of Christ, I mean, Christ said, don't hide your light under a bushel. But then again, we don't like spiritual braggarts, you know, who are always spouting off about what they're experiencing. There's some kind of well, ba balance to be found there. Yeah, and it's still, you know, the West doesn't have a particular good rep for encouraging people to to speak at, to speak freely about religious topics, especially going back to history. Yeah, uh, yeah, I mean, all the mystics um, got, you know, killed or persecuted or given a hard time by administrative so types who weren't having those experiences yeah so it's, it's not a good incentive to speak yeah good point <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and still it happens it happens now really it's i was invited to go over to egypt to to chat mm -hmm. and then some people that i know who have been there just said phoned me and said well possibly it's better not to go and it hadn't occurred to me because mm. um, you can still upset people quite easily yeah. Um, you know, that was one of my motivations for starting this show was I live in a town where a lot of people have been meditating for decades and people were having, you know, awakenings and and they would I would hear from them. They would, they'd say, well, I, I had this really profound shift and I, I started telling my friends about it and they all gave me a hard time. They said, well, you know, you're just Joe Schmo. You couldn't possibly be having something like this. Um, you know, so I, uh, I thought, well, you know, I want to start interviewing these people so that their peers can see that it's happening to people just like them and then maybe they won't give them a hard time and also maybe they will um, you know, have more confidence that it could happen to them too. 
And so that, mm. that was one of the reasons this thing got going. Yeah, and it feels like it feels like a very natural yeah. uh, luminosity. It's not a, it's not special. Right. It's something everyone it's, should it's very enjoy. Very natural. Yes. Yeah. It's it's <laughs> juice. It's the juice of, of time and space. Right. It's the juice of it all. I mean, so if we went back to the 1800s, you know, think about how people would react if we pulled out a cell phone or, you know, took a took off in a helicopter or any, any of those types of things. <laughs> they'd, they'd be completely freaked out, freaked out. But now we all just take it for granted. And yeah. I think the same thing can happen with what you're talking about, you know, over time. And maybe we're getting moving in that direction. It feels, you know, to my character, it feels a bit like that, like the old central structures of authority, whether they're political or financial or religious mm -hmm. or so-called spiritual, they're all being shaken, really, yeah. quite strongly at the moment. And there seems to be like um, a decentralization of those central authorities. And possibly the sort of thing we're chatting about is hugely has a decentralization of effect because it removes the middle person with authority yeah. in a sense or it makes them a lot less significant or less critical i think you're right uh, i mean there was a time and maybe it's still true that in the catholic church you know priests were officially considered the intermediaries between the ordinary people and god and I mean, there was a big fuss when Gutenberg came out with the Bible because it was getting to the point where others could read it also, and you didn't need, you know, priests to to intervene, and uh, you know, and so that was a big shakeup. But I, I think we've we've obviously come quite a way since then. But I think it's even getting more decentralized, as you were just saying, more democratized, um, and you know, people are gaining the confidence to recognize that they. I mean, the, the title of the show, Buddha at the Gas Pump, people in ordinary circumstances having the sort of experiences that were once considered super special and rare, you know? Yeah, it's, it's not, it's, no, it's natural. Yeah. And, you know, again, over, I don't know, 40 years of chatting to characters, you know, all the characters that I've met have got wet. It's all, you know, some of them, some of them have been, you know, it makes it, you know, a, a great little story. But a lot, for a lot of them, there was simply just almost like they were waking up in the morning, but no sense of there being a separate something waking up. Mm -hmm. It was so, it was such a non-event in a sense. Yeah. Um, I think it's, you have to be careful when you link it to be in something special that can be problematic yeah and on the other hand just to play devil's advocate um, I sometimes hear people saying they dumb it down too much sometimes they th say things like yeah you know you could be a drunkard and you can be a you know an abusive SOB and you can be creepy and all this stuff and yet you're you're awakened I don't know I don't like to take it that far I, I think that they're that if if, an, if awakening is really genuine and you've you've developed a sort of awareness and sensitivity to which you have been alluding, um, your behavior is not going to really be out of line like that, um, at least in my idealistic sense of it. Um, so I, I just don't like the attitude that anything goes and you, you can be, you know, 
um, an enlightened axe murderer or something. <laughs> you know, it's just there's got to yeah. be some kind of clearer definition of it. I think. I've, I've, well, I've never met any um, character who's an axe murderer and enlightened. Yeah. So I don't know. Actually, but, one of the uh, avatars in, of Vishnu was an axe murderer. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> he went around chopping off all the Kshatriya's heads. <laughs> yeah. It makes a sweet story for Hollywood. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. Now, feel free every, to just always chime in if, if there's a pause and I'm not asking you a question. If something has been on your mind, just pop in there. Um, I, I just want to pick up on your use of the word character. You frequently refers to characters that get whacked or my character and all. And when you say that, I, I get the implication that you're saying that, you know, what you essentially are is not what is not this Paul fellow that we see on screen that that's just the character like a, a character in a play or a puppet or something and that it, it does an injustice to the reality of that ocean to um, squeeze it down into the drop of, of an individual so you, you're trying to remind people of that by using the word character am I right but no not really okay it's well why do you say that all the time <laughs> well it doesn't um, I don't know what, what, why I say most things, but because the character is it. What do you mean? It's, it's not like it's not like the character's less important. Okay. Well, why don't you? Um, I mean, if you go to the dentist with a toothache, a toothache, you don't say to the dentist, uh, "Hey, my character has a toothache." You know, because the dentist will probably say, "Okay, we'll bring him in. I'll, I'll take a look." You know, <laughs> I mean, you would just say, yeah. I, "I have a toothache." <laughs> I just say, "There's lots of pain." You could say it that way, or you... <laughs> yeah, I don't know. But it's, uh, uh, well, the reason I'm bugging I, you about I, that is some people play word games, you know, uh, with regard to pronouns. You know, they don't want to just say, you know, please pass me the salt, you know, or some simple thing like that. They start trying to phrase their words in such a way as to constantly remind people that they are not the body, they are not the personality, and so on. And it sometimes sounds a little unnatural. No, I'm, I'm very much my character. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and you're also Paul, I guess. Yeah, well, uh, the different words for the same thing. Same thing. And so I'll perhaps say character or me or time and space. They're all words for the same thing yeah and even if you say my character it's like are there two of you there's a character and then there's the me who owns it i mean it's kind yeah of... the whole structure of words is problematic yeah so in a sense we are having a drunken conversation right cheers <laughs> cheers <laughs> because it can't because in a sense all the, all these words come out of time and space and they're full of the the alcohol of time and space. Yeah. So, and um, but what they they're singing about or they're in love with hasn't got a measurement, but all these words are measurements. Mm -hmm. um, but it's not that the measurement is right or wrong, because the measurement is it as well, yeah. uh, and and isn't it simultaneously, so to speak? So. Where it inherently 
But you like using a spade to try to dig a hole in the ocean, and it's it's not a very suitable instrument. <laughs> um, if you were using words to build a house, it'd be more useful. Mm. Uh, but in this context of this drunken conversation, the spade of words we're using isn't a brilliant instrument. But it's better than just staring knowingly into each other's eyes for two hours. That would get a bit boring. So it's it's good to kind wow. of try to I do something with it, words. <laughs> it depends whether you were blonde and more beautiful. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Next lifetime, maybe. <laughs> no, but it can be, you know, it's, it's in the silence as well as the words. There's not one better than the other. Sure. It's just, it's, 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 it's everything. I'm sure we all experience that very often we'll have a conversation with somebody and the words just form a small percentage of the actual communication that's taking place. You know, you, you use the words in order to sort of keep it going, but there's so many other strata of communication that are happening. And it's, yeah, it's very much, because you can listen to words and you can play with words for hours and hours and hours. Um, but also, people can hear the same words again and suddenly something different is heard, so to speak. Very true. And uh, uh, something else goes on there. That's more like... Uh, um, it's almost like a sense of something here in itself. Mm -hmm. uh, and that can have a different physiological response in the body than just uh, an intellectual um, process, which could be fun and and it can help and create clarity in, in with certain ideas and whatever. Um, but when when this wetness slaps you, it tends to go below the neck. <laughs> good, good one. <laughs> so and the the whole body gets gets hugged or slapped, whichever, whichever way, whether you want to be romantic or uh, something else happens. Or slapstick, yeah. 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 No, that's nice. And, and very often um, people talk that way, you know, they talk about levels of awakening on head, heart and gut and so on, the way Adyashanti talks and, you know, that it's not just, an obviously not just an intellectual thing um, or a mind thing. Um, it's, you know, it's uh, on all levels and, and very visceral. Yeah, because in that sense, it's got nothing to do with being clever or not clever. No. Um, it's, it's, it's more, in a sense, more immediate than that. Mm -hmm. it's, it's more immediate than any, any movement of measuring, any movement of time and space, so any movement of a concept. Um, in, in one sense, anything that can be measured or conceptualized into a, a sort of knowing, into a box, as it were, uh, tends to be problematic with regard to this freedom. Yeah. You know that old Buddhist saying of the finger pointing at the moon, um, you know, and then people are getting all hung up on the finger instead of looking at the moon. So, I mean, all these words and all this talk and, and so on. Yeah. It's, it's that finger. Let, let, yeah, literally. I remember listening to all these delegations talking uh -huh. um, and arguing and sometimes quite heated. Mm. And it is the utter simplicity of this luminosity. Um, and yet 
quite naturally the 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 brain will try to create a knowing of it in a sense, or create a map of it. Mm-hmm. And then for Mike, for me anyway, it it's felt like all these delegations were arguing over their maps. Yeah. But none of the maps were it in a sense anyway. Um, and it was almost like arguing in in in, in completely um, the wrong place. They weren't in, even in the same room as this luminosity, yeah. as it were. Well, uh, you know, I mean, days and weeks, this arguments and months and years and and thousands of years. Millennia. I mean, hundreds of millions of people yeah. have been killed over disputes over maps, which actually refer to the same territory, um, but. You know the adherents of the maps are attached to their version, and uh, you know they yeah, can't, they you can't can see, see the own, Yeah, you can see that the map is simultaneously the person's identity, mm-hmm. and people will fight strongly over their sense of identity. Yeah, because um, if their map gets threatened, as it were, their identity gets threatened, uh, and then they te- they can become quite feisty. It's an interesting point. I mean, the point you're making is that is that fundamentalism is symptomatic of an insecurity in one's identity, you know. That um, and to me that that insecurity lies in not having the actual experience to which one's belief refers. Um, you know, so you can listen to the words of Jesus, for instance, and. Uh, you're not experiencing what Jesus experienced, or or what he was alluding to, and so you you feel an insecurity, and you get real fanatical about his words, and your interpretation of his words versus somebody else's interpretation, who perhaps also isn't having that experience, and the two of you can be at loggerheads, you know, over something which you should both be, you know, hugging each other about, you know, if you had the experience. Yeah, for sure. Like if you had, you know, you often, I live by the beach and so often you'd see uh, kids playing on the beach mm-hmm. and complete strangers, you know, kids and they just look at each other across a sandcastle and often just walk up to each other and hug each other. Oh, nice. You know, for, you know, for all, you know, from all cultures and, and whatever, there's, that's, to me, that's in a sense the naturalness of aliveness. That's the juiciness of it. Yeah. Um, but on top of that, as we get older, and our brains become a lot more sophisticated in building maps mm. and building identities. And and when a, a map becomes, we believe in our maps. And if enough people believe in their map, it becomes a reality, as it were. And then they'll they'll fight yeah. over their map this is to sweet. the death. It's a really sweet point you're making, you know, because with all the trouble in the world and all the political and economic and national divides and and conflicts and strife and, uh, you know, currently and going back throughout history, um, you know, we're really all just one being, one one ocean. And it's it's sort of absurd that apparent fragments of the ocean are at war with one another. How can the ocean be at war with itself? <laughs> so obviously it's a situation of extreme delusion that, that all this strife exists and if people were able to settle into what they really are, there'd be complete unity and harmony. 
but the possibility is that the very movement of time and space of, of me is a bit of a contradiction in the sense that there can be a movement but not a mover. So in, in a sense, the identity is dealing with, that's why it's what you said earlier, it's always uncertain of itself mm. because in a way it's, it's all based on a lie. Mm -hmm. It's based on a, on an energetic lie that it's separate from life, that it's separate from the other person or, or whatever. So, in, in, in some way, the energetic movement of me tends to be inherently quite destructive to itself and to others as part and process of that movement. It's like the very movement has to be creative and destructive simultaneously to create the movement. It seems to arise out of the, the polarity of this appearance of two things, mm -hmm. of two poles. It's both attracted and repulsed by both poles. Mm. <laughs> so it's, it's attracted and repulsed by the unknown and it's attracted and repulsed by the known. Again, paradoxically, it need, it, without that appearance of two, there can be no move, appearance of a movement. It's the appearance of two that creates that energetic, almost like a constantly energetic imbalance, mm -hmm. which creates the appearance of movement of time and space. But without the two, you can't have time and space and vice versa. Right. You yeah. can't have movement, you can't have time. Can't but have to have universe. that, the price you pay is for the, it's a bit like walking. To walk, there has to be a constant imbalance to create that movement. And we're always moving in a constant imbalance and hopefully not too imbalanced, we're not too drunk, in which it can be problematic. But the other problematic, if it becomes too balanced, the movement stops. Mm. If things become too known, it becomes Well, it, in a sense, it kills, and if it becomes too unknown, there's a sense it kills. So it's uh, the whole movement of me is a is a contradictory paradox, and it can only be like that. So, in a very neutral way, I often say the very movement of me is born out of violence, and is part and parcel of movement of time and space. So it can never be divorced from it because it's part and parcel of its of its energetic nature. And also, again on the beach, you see the kids building sandcastles and they spend all day building sometimes stunning sandcastles, even with the with the apparent adult who, who is then a kid building sandcastles for their children as well. But towards the end of the day, when you see the faces of those children smashing their sandcastles, there's actually so much joy in their faces mm. as they're smashing their sandcastles. Mm. Again, we have in our characters this beautiful wonderment of creating, but also in paradoxically in destroying as well. Mm. So it's part and parcel of this movement called time and space or called me. But it, that it's simultaneously creative and destructive. Yeah, kind of reminds me of the Tibetan sand uh, paintings that they do. You know, they do these beautiful things and then they just wipe them away. Yeah. Um, 
And it, it also reminds me of the sort of the whole Vedic tradition, and I'm sure this is true of other traditions, where, <clears throat> you know, you have, you know, the Brahma, Vishnu, Shiva, the creator, the maintainer, and the destroyer. And all three are considered necessary for there to be a creation. You know, there's a balance and a reciprocity between them that makes the whole thing happen. And even from the physics perspective, I mean, there's something called spontaneous sequential symmetry breaking, where there's a sort of a fundamental symmetry um, at the most uh, primordial level of, of the universe, and that it's broken by degrees sequentially. And uh, as it's broken, then more and more and more force and matter fields and diversity and elements and the whole thing arise. And, and in their arising, obviously, there's, there are going to be <clears throat> sort of conflicts and clashes and, you know, interactions. And it, the whole thing gets very, very kind of mixed up. But if it didn't go through that process, you wouldn't have a creation. Or destruction. Or destruction, yeah. And so it's, yeah. it's, like, the, it's like the course of, of, the, of creative intelligence, we could call it, is from here to here. You know, from eye to eye. Um, it's like, you know that T.S. Eliot line that we, you know, the end of all our seeking will be to arrive back at the place from which we started and to know it for the first time. Very much. Yeah. And you often hear that from, from people. It's, they'll often say, uh, I speak, uh, uh, an old monk contacted me, uh, a Benedictine monk, a little while, a few months ago. Mm -hmm. And, uh, it's quite funny because he was he was swearing quite a lot on the phone, <laughs> which of, of, often happens with spiritual characters. Yeah. They'll they'll because he was saying, Paul, what I was looking for was there the first day I walked into the monastery like forty years ago, mm -hmm. and I went into the and sat to pray. What I was looking for was was there when when I walked in on the first day. Mm -hmm. So it's very much, uh, again, I often say it's, a, it's a, an apparent movement, but with no mover. Yeah. So it is, a, it is literally a journeyless journey. Yeah, pathless path. <laughs> and if it wasn't there on the first day, then it must, it, could, it must not have been something abiding or permanent, you know? It would be a transitory thing, and that's not what he was looking for. He was looking, no. you know, there's that verse the, in the Gita, the unreal has no being, the real never ceases to be. It's everything. Yeah. It never wasn't the case. And that's, I often feel, I often hear people say this word unconditional. Mm -hmm. And literally this ocean is because it already is the case. Yeah. There doesn't have to be a condition for it because it, al it already is everything. Yeah. Now that is not to say that it's sufficient to just say something like that or accept someone saying something like that and and say to yourself okay i'm done it's all you know it's all already the case and you know what I, what i'm looking for is already here because it may not be your experience and if it's not your experience then you've got to go through whatever you got to go through until it becomes your experience and and you can't just necessarily do it at the snap of a finger you know in my experience no no, no. Again, there doesn't seem to be any rules to this. You'd have to do some sort of scientific 
research and analyze all these different characters and but only from the characters I've met over the years. Because in a way this ocean doesn't have, have anything because it does it's not in a relationship with anything. So it doesn't sing it doesn't say do this or not do it. It's a relationship with itself. Yeah, it's so if the character loves to meditate, that's gorgeous. Mm -hmm. Meditate. I had a, a friend, a good friend in the monastery, and for his character, sitting to meditate was utter violence. Mm. He used to hate it. He used to suffer and suffer and suffer. Kind of depends uh, on how you're but, going about it, but anyway, go on. Yeah, but he'd work all day helping people and feeding people and whatever. Oh, that's great, yeah. And I remember one day some, somebody gave to the monastery a, a clock to put in in the meditation room mm -hmm. and this it was a lovely clock but it went as clocks do it went tick tick tock tick tock, tick -tock. <laughs> and that was the final straw for my friends because uh -huh. at that time my character would just sit and could just sit there for hours and days or whatever and I came sitting and I came to with it, my friend and his his hands were around my neck and he was shaking me like this. And he's saying, Paul, Paul, it's not fair. <laughs> How can you sit there? And, and for him, it was murder. So for that character to tell him to go and sit, it yeah. didn't seem to be the, the pertinent thing to do. So it's not like one size fits all. It's very individual to the, to the person. I totally agree, and that's why there are different paths, you know, I mean, traditionally there's, you know, the, the bhakti path, devotion, there's the service path, seva, and there's the knowledge path, jnana, and there's the, you know, action path, karma, and so on, and different people are acclimated or, or constituted uh, to be more suitable to one approach or another. And it doesn't matter because they're all just flavors of the same thing anyway. Yeah, they, so you have to do what's right for you. Well, it's just it's just being it's like common sense yeah yeah <laughs> again this is not about it doesn't seem to be about being clever it's more about natural and common sense yeah but one one point i heard you make in some of your talks that i might take exception to and perhaps you didn't mean it this way is that, you know you're saying it makes no difference whether you sit and meditate or hang out in a pub and I would say it does make a difference. I mean, to take it to a greater extreme, it, you could say it makes no difference whether you meditate regularly or do a bunch of methamphetamine every day. Yeah, well, the one is actually going to help your brain develop you know, neuroplasticity. The other is going to destroy your brain. And that's going to make a difference in how you experience life. So you have to be a little careful when you make statements like that, that what we do actually does matter, wouldn't you say? in a natural, practical way, for sure, big time. Yeah. Yeah. I can't remember the context and what it's, you're referring to. It was to. something like that that you said but, in a um, talk. And, yeah. But again, the, again, the flavor of this ocean is, it's more like a, it's not like a butt ocean. A, a it's what more ocean? Like an, but, like, 
but you said this, or but oh. he said that, uh-huh. or but that book said that. Yeah. It has more of a flavor of and, and, right. and that. So in other words, Ooh, it contains and everything. And and that. Sure. Um, it contains the Holocaust, and it contains, you know, some beautiful things, and it's like everything is contained within this, this great wholeness, is this ocean, right? Is that yes, what you're saying? Yeah. There's nothing to exclude. Yeah. As it were. But for sure, there's there's practical ramifications. Yeah. Like so many. Again, we were speaking earlier about the side effects. Sometimes, when when people are going through a well, a change in which the map of their identity is being shaken, mm-hmm. <laughs> as it were. And they can often then find it difficult to engage in what they were engaged in before. Um, and part of that process is earning money and things like that. Mm-hmm. But they have very practical consequences for not just the, the person, but their family and everything like that. Yeah. So the so-called spiritual thing doesn't negate earning money and being practical and putting food on the table. Again, it's very earthy and muddy and down to earth in many ways in getting on with what needs to be done. And But there's no suggestion that... the sense of one thing can be more conducive or more of an obstacle, as it were, uh, for that character. In the sense that, because there's nothing that can get closer to everything, there's just everything. Yeah, well, I'm going to... But that doesn't negate what you're just going to say. Right, which is, I was going to give you a little bit of a hard time on that point. (laughs) Yeah, and what you're going to say also is it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in the big picture... It appears to be a but, but possibly it's an and. Yeah. I mean, in five billion years from now, this planet is going to melt because the sun's going to expand. And, you know, long before that, everybody, well, everyone that's alive now will have died. But obviously it's it's not going to be too rosy uh, on on Earth. Um, And, well, I don't know, maybe that's not the best example, but... Uh, Well, yeah, I could use it. So, you know, from the perspective of the totality, you know, of the ocean, of the the universe or whatever, that's all in a day's work. I mean, it's it's natural. This kind of thing happens every, you know, probably every day. Some asteroid crashes into an inhabited planet and, and kills everything. But on the other hand, taking it down to the individual level, there, there was a, um, a Buddhist um, sage who lived maybe a thousand years ago named Padmasambhava, and there's a quote from him. He said, although my awareness is as vast as the sky, my attention to karma is as fine as a grain of barley flour. And what he meant by that, I think, is that the, the ocean, one's oceanhood, the, the unboundedness of it all, doesn't negate or render insignificant all the, the various individual values and um, responsibilities and consequences of our behavior and the choices we make and so on. So both are true and they may be paradoxical, but they don't um, conflict with one another. For sure, yeah. definitely. And it's because um, people often, because I've got two boys, you know, people often ask me, well, what about your boys? and 
being responsible for them and things like that. Mm -hmm. And but that thing called responsibility is the ocean. Yeah. And it and it's so it's responsibility full on. <laughs> yeah. In that sense. Um, so, if, like for my younger son, he that sense that there was a separate something like collapsed in him when he was about twelve or mm. whatever. So it is quite funny because he does a lot of he's a free runner. He does lots of parkour. I don't know. Oh yeah, I know what that means. Like you're well, jumping on these obstacles and it's kind of kind of kind of dangerous, and you're flipping dangerous. over things. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I turned around in the guard, and he was training, and he was in tears, and I thought he'd fallen off something, and I thought, oh, here we go to the A and E again. <laughs> and he just walked up to me, and he said, "There is nobody here, is there, Dad?" Oh. And I said, "No." And just physiologically, often tears is, is quite common, mm -hmm. or swearing, or laughter. It seems to be a physiological response when this sort of slap comes, mm. this wetness. But yeah, there's no father or, or son as such, but there doesn't need to be a separate father and son, paradoxically, for there to be beautiful responsibility. Yeah. And all the practical consequences of dealing because then the whole authority structure for the, for him fell away so there was no authority figure called mama dad or indeed school so he he wrote a resignation letter and a, tw a 22 page document when he was 12 or 13 saying school is an inefficient use of my time i'm resigning and he resigned can you leave school at that age in the u.s yeah. i don't think you could yeah, in this country you have a legal responsibility to ed educate your child, mm -hmm. but not to send them to school. Oh, uh, yeah, homeschooling kind of thing. Yeah, so I took him into the headmistress and he handed his notice in, and she read it and just said, oh, okay, <laughs> and that was it. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting <laughs> that both you and your son had an awakening in a way, I don't know, as a result of sport, but kind of while playing it or just after. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I, I, I hadn't thought about that. Kind of runs in the genes or something. So perhaps sport is the key. It is. Everyone should go out and... <laughs> but look after your knees. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and wear a helmet, maybe, if you're doing parkour. Yeah, or, or American football. Yeah. Yeah, I heard you tell your story about your son. It was fascinating, and now he's doing some kind of... He, he's talking about there being a new industrial revolution and and he's doing some kind of business which would take advantage of the the change that he sees coming in society or something like that yeah well his well, after that experience his character changed dramatically mm -hmm. um, and, and for me you I often say he start is he started moving in the realm of ideas in, in the sense that he was creating maps mm. uh, creating identities and and also destroying them, like creating sandcastles on the beach very quickly. Mm -hmm. And he was like, oh, has been like burning through maps. So different like, personality like, phases, you mean? Yeah, you can see it's almost like life has speeded up in, 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 for, for his character. And so he's creating realities and, and destroying them very quickly. Interesting. Um, yeah, it's, it's fascinating watching. Um, and so, yeah, he started his own business up. He started trading. He's doing really well. Trading like stocks or something? Um, well, he discovered something called the blockchain, uh -huh. um, which is like a decentralized uh, way of exchanging anything of value. Uh 
uh-huh. with no middle person. Uh-huh. So it's a little bit like we've been having this conversation about the Orthodox religious traditions. So he feels that this emerging technology of, of robotics and AI and blockchain mm-hmm. will create the equivalent of a new industrial revolution in which power will be decentralized from central authorities more into a decentralized landscape. Mm-hmm. And he's very passionate to use the system, being practical, as you said, as it is, but using it to change itself. So he's very inspired by, you know, I suppose, people like Elon Musk and things. Oh, yeah. I think he's right. How old is he now? He's just 15 now. Wow. That's so cool that he's doing all that stuff yeah. at such a young age. I mean, what, what we're doing is an example of what he was saying. I, I used to say freedom of the press belongs to those who own one. And uh, now everyone owns one in the sense, you, you know, you can sort of broadcast and put things out there and, uh, you know. It's so de- decentralized, so... Well, yeah, it's like exactly what you're doing. Yeah, exactly. You're decentralizing information and apparent authority from from how it was structured Yeah. into a very different sort of landscape and communication. Mm-hmm. And in that, the actual conversation is changing and it the is. possibilities are changing. Yeah, it's exciting. It's an exciting time it to is. be alive. Let's stay yeah. alive as long as we can. <laughs> <laughs> Knees notwithstanding. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, he, you know, he sees, you know, lots of things imminently happening. He says the future's here now, but it's not spread out bad. Yeah, that's brilliant. Wow. I was such a nincompoop when I was 15. It's really inspiring to hear someone that age being so wise. It's, it, it was weird. He was invited by the Bank of England, which is our central bank, uh-huh. uh, to a dinner meeting to give them input about the future uh, disruption of these technologies. Amazing. And he, t- he, t- he took a photo and he sat there with his baseball hat on uh-huh. with people like, oh, you know, posh people, as he said. Right, all kinds of... And he, he came back, he said, Dad, that was my first experience of power. Because <laughs> he said the way we were treated by everybody he said he'd never experienced that before. Huh. So he said, I've realized how power can be so intoxicating for people. And, yeah. and you know, we've talked about obviously spiritual and religious things and the whole constructs that society has made. And that possibly they're not as authoritative as, as we presume them to be. Yeah. And not as all knowing as we presume them to be. It's all the emperor's they new don't clothes have kind the of thing. Yeah, yeah. Right. But he can see, you know, it's his first experience of why people fall in love with power and why they hold on to it. Mm. And we see that, well, I'm sure you've seen it in, in the spiritual circle, as in the economic circle or the political circle. Again, it's human nature. It's those kids on the beach. Yeah, there's that saying, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. I don't know who said that. But... um it definitely can be intoxicating and go to one's head. It is, and you know, within the context of our conversation, you know, over 40 years of chatting to people, mm-hmm. you know, you hear so many stories from people that have, in one way or another, have been abused by people in religious or spiritual authority. Yeah. 
and um, in a sense, my I made a New Year's resolution to become more grumpy. So I'm going to be I'm wanting to become more grumpy with that sort of stuff. As long as you don't become I, abusive I, in the process. Yeah, I'm le I'm less patient of all that sort of uh, when people use power to abuse other people. Yeah, you know that's another meme that is kind of emerging in the collective consciousness. I gave a talk at the Science and Non-Duality Conference in October about the ethics of enlightenment and a bunch of people came up afterwards, teachers and non-teachers, and just said, we've all been talking about this and thinking about this. The time has come to not tolerate this kind of stuff anymore. And look what's happening now. I don't know about in, in the UK, but over here, all these movie stars and politicians and all are getting busted for you know sexual abuse and, and um, using their power to take advantage of people. And in the collective consciousness, there's a impatience with that, a, a lack of, of tolerance of it anymore. So. Yes, so I think in people's characters that one there needs to be like a, at least like a, in a sense, a street awareness when you're around people with power to be careful. And that equally goes to so-called spiritual teachers and gurus and whatever. Yeah. It's like, I, I often say, regard them as second-hand car salesmen until they prove otherwise. <laughs> yeah. It's possibly a good start-off point. Yeah. Because power, power is such, it is, it's so appealing to characters. It is, and it's it's tricky not only for the students of such people, but for the people themselves. I mean, they get hit harder than any of them if, um, you know, there's that saying, pride goeth before a fall. There are so many instances of people just getting, letting it go to their heads, and the whole thing gets out of control, and then they end up crashing and burning. So there's this kind of a, a maturity, I think, that's necessary in order to assume the role of a spiritual teacher and often people try to assume it prematurely. Again, in the old monastic traditions, they used to say, stay quiet for 20 years. Yeah. <laughs> and possibly there's a, there's a common sense in that, really. Yeah. Um, now, the times are such again, that we need people to, you know, get out there and, and talk and teach. I mean, there seems to be this, again, the democratization idea where it's not just sort of one guru with thousands of followers, but hundreds and hundreds of people with small gatherings that are helpful to those people. But the same um, dynamic is there where there has to be a, a readiness and a, a maturity in order to assume that role. Otherwise, you're not going to be helping anyone, including yourself. My son was telling me he was reading a book called uh, Stealing Fire, I think it's called, and it goes into a, about transcendence or mm -hmm. move into a different state. And they were analysing Navy SEALs. It's written by scientists, I think. Yeah. And when they're looking for a Navy SEAL, they're looking for a character that, when in extreme circumstances, doesn't become like a superhero like you see in the movies, right. like a, a super individual. He actually can become one with the group. Yeah, has the group in so mind. Then there's no leader. There's no leader in a group, in a mm. Navy SEAL group. Mm. Whoever's in the best position becomes not the natural leader at that moment in time. Oh. 
So like in a conversation, is there a teacher or is there a, a student? The teacher and the, the student, if, if you want to use those words, appear all over the place in a word, in a mannerism from every character in a conversation. Yeah. It's not located, it's not located inside that certain character or physiology. In that sense, that the, uh, if you could say there was a teacher or it's non-local, <laughs> in a sense. Yeah, people become more like catalysts in a way, you know. They can serve to facilitate something in the group. And I know people who are really uncomfortable even just sitting on some kind of stage or anything. They just would, they'd rather get down the, on the floor and have everybody in a circle and, and just to sort of make it more clear that there's a commonality yeah, and not a, hi sure, not a hierarchical arrangement. Because it's, it's, as you said earlier, so much of communication isn't in the words. And, you know, as we said, words are problematic anyway. Yeah. Because they're not a particularly great instrument for singing about this. But also when you build a, a structure like and you, you raise somebody onto a platform, as it were, that already is communicating something in our conditioning. Mm -hmm. So, but there's, like you said, you know, we can't but use words. So sometimes those situations, but you just have to be careful with them. Yeah. Not to get, not to believe in them. <laughs> right. Or in yourself too much in terms of any yeah. individual in importance. Any, well, yeah, to believe in any measurement. Yeah. A measurement is real. But it's a measurement of something which has no measurement. So simultaneously, it's, a, it's unreal, as it were. There's a, a quote from uh, Ama, whom you see over my shoulder here. She always says, it's always good to have the attitude of a beginner. And I, th I think what she means by that is that humility, recognition, that one doesn't know everything or have some kind of super duper status or anything that if you just have that attitude almost like the attitude of a servant which you know some of the great saints that we admire throughout history have had just the hum humility and servant sense of servitude that it's, it's a safeguard for yourself and also oh. makes you more helpful perhaps to others but in many ways, Rick, it's more simple than that. It's so close, as it were, yeah, yeah. that in a sense, it's all—it's brand new. And in that brand newness, there's no knowing, because there's no even knowing that it's brand new. But it is—it's—it's it's immaculate in a sense, and perhaps that's the story of the immaculate conception. It's literally, literally time and space is immaculate. And in that timeless seamlessness, there is no need of knowing. And yet it can appear as, as knowing. It can appear as a measurement. It's 
interesting you should say all that in response to what I just said. I'm, not, I'm trying to get the segue, how, how we got to that, but it's, it's interesting what you're saying. Um, maybe just the brand new part. Um, Literally. Yeah. In other words, ever fresh, moment to moment. Are you kind of saying that there's a... Um, it's, it's, no, it's not even more imminent than that. It's not, there's no... Closer than one's jugular vein, as they say. It's like you push the brain towards it, as it were, and suddenly the the, the brain and the, and the words go. Mm -hmm. They just stop because there's no measurement for it. In that sense, it's not a time and space thing. <laughs> it precedes time and space. But, uh, Could you in say? a sense, but it is time and space also. Yes, the form is the formless. They only, in language, appear to be two things. Mm -hmm. Language is a two-edged sword. It can create as much separation as as clarity, as it were. And it'll do both unavoidably, because that's the nature of the two. Yeah, I don't even know if, well, maybe language is to blame, but we still use it and think it kind of depends on our orientation to it, that if we keep it in its proper place and recognize its limitations, then it can be a useful tool. If, if we think that it's capable of encapsulating the, the whole reality and that the words themselves are are so important then the whole thing gets top heavy and and misinterpretation and confusion emerge yeah and we just fight over words we exactly. fight over measurements like we were saying earlier i'm going to loop back to some stuff in your personal life which i think is kind of fascinating well firstly let me ask what was your motivation for leaving the monastery after five years the same impulse playful playfulness that took me there yeah something moved you to leave yeah just let, moved and i lived like a hermit for a while on my parents farm and then it so you just, must have been about early 20s by that time so if you went yeah, in when 20, you were 17 or so. Yeah, 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 22 or whatever. And how old were you when you got married? I can't remember. Roughly. Later 20s. Later 20s, okay. And you had this interesting story about that, where your wife, whom you, you'd never met the woman, and this name popped into your head, <laughs> and you thought, I'm going to marry this person. You didn't even know if such a person existed or if she did where she was or anything else, but boom, I'm going to marry this person. What do you make of that? I mean, how did that happen? I, I don't know. It's just what happened. Sounds a bit weird. One of those mystical um, kind of things. Yeah, I was just sitting quietly and I heard the word, the name, and I just knew I'd marry her. And so then you overheard some women in a store or something talking about this person? Yeah, in, in, in the local village, I heard the name then again. Mm -hmm. So. I inquired, I said, who is this person? I also asked, how old are they? Uh -huh. <laughs> oh, she's and, 70. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. And uh, 
I, I got hold of her telephone number mm -hmm. and I I just phoned her up out of the blue and said, you know, my name's Paul, would you like to go out for dinner? He said, no. <laughs> Unless your name is McCartney, I don't think so. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah so I remember putting the phone down and, and thinking, well, we're getting married. Well, why did you say no? <laughs> yeah. And then months later, she phoned me. Right, she was snow, snowed in someplace, right? And, and she phoned yeah, you and asked so if you had a four-wheel drive vehicle. And... Yeah, my mum and dad had an old, these little Suzuki for four, four by fours. Mm -hmm. So I, I managed to get down, it was a long farm lane. It is, uh, yeah, full of snow. It was very beautiful and the, the gates had iced up. When mm -hmm. there's, you know, a bit like film, really. Yeah, I so you, you were like Prince, anyway, Prince Charming to, coming to uh, save her. And... Yeah, I rescued her mm -hmm. and took her for dinner. Killed a dragon or two on the way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you took her for dinner and then, uh, so one thing led to the next. Yeah, we just, you know, we, we kept in communication. Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, eventually married and uh, um, had two boys. Yeah. And you didn't stay, how long were you married? keep asking you all these number Twen things. Twenty, I, I, I don't, 25 years? Or huh. Interesting. Odd. What did she make of your whole orientation to life? <laughs> I mean, did she kind um, of get this ocean business? Because my character will just speak about it when it gets prodded. Yeah, so did, was she interested so, in that whole thing? So in a sense, she, she had a sense that when she said when she met me, it felt like coming home. Huh. Uh, that's the only way that she verbalized it, really. Mm -hmm. um, um, so it's funny, it's like, I was speaking to my son uh, yesterday, and often people ask me, or oh, what do you say to your children you know, about this? And I often don't understand questions. It takes my brain a little while to like mm. create that sort of map, because mm -hmm. the, the question doesn't make much sense. Yeah because cause everything's the ocean. Mm -hmm. So th there's nothing that needs to be spoken about as such, because the, the kids, as it were, just grew up in the ocean. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so it's just, it's just always what is. Um, so they didn't have to be like some sort of proper conversation about, because there isn't a something which is the ocean, there isn't a something over there or behind there which is the ocean. It's not a something in that sense. Right. Uh, so to make it into something, it just becomes another um, uh, another measurement, which isn't it. Yeah. And so um, this all, this what you're saying now arose from my asking about whether your wife was interested in this stuff. And so I guess what you're saying is it was, it's so natural to you that you don't make a deal out of it. it if she's interested, she's interested. If she's not, she's not. But it's like it wasn't relevant, really, as a topic of discussion well, the, or something. But but making a living is the was the ocean. Yeah, something you need to do. Building a business. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and making profits and and and. And you have some kind of art studio which, which or something, don't you? Which yeah. yeah. And deciding which school for your children to go to and what books to read and yeah. what stories to 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 tell them and things like that. Those are all currents within the ocean. Well, the, 
although this sounds a bit paradoxical, they're not even currents. It's the whole ocean is in it. Aha, uh-huh. no, I get that. Yeah. Uh, so because a current sounds ocean. isolated, but what you're saying is that the whole ocean is in every drop. Of, uh, is it? it yeah, is, yeah, it's in changing the baby's nappy. It's in the hug. It's in cooking breakfast. It's in reading the book. It's in um, trying to make a, a, a business deal to make yeah. money to mm-hmm. pay the mortgage. Right. Um, it, it's it's all of that. That's that's all the juice. Yeah, it was it William Blake said, "Infinity in a wildflower, eternity in an hour." It's it's sort of the whole the totality is in in the part. Literally. Yeah. Yeah. That that thing we call the part, which we think we know, we know the measurement, but we don't know what's being measured. Mm-hmm. But the paradoxical thing is that that measurement is measuring something which has no measurement, which is immeasurable. So that thing we call a cup of tea, for instance, is everything. Yeah. See, now words aren't so bad. I mean, that's beautiful what you're saying. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's poetic, but it, it's like, you know, there's people who have a way with words, Rumi and various others, who, or even the Upanishads, which you referred to earlier, where the words somehow magically give one a, an intuitive sense of the, the reality to which they point. And and so they really do have their function. It's a bit like, like that. It's a bit like a love affair. Yeah. In the sense, when you're speaking about your lover, something comes through the words that isn't simply the words. Yes, yes. A feeling is conveyed or a... a, a you talked about smells earlier. There's, a, there's an aroma that, that um, is stimulated by the words. Yeah. yeah. So this 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 conversation is literally everything. smells good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so um, it's probably too personal to ask, but maybe you could ask, answer in a general way uh, in terms of the, the types of things you've been saying. But you said after twenty twenty five years that relationship ended, and I guess you would just say that that's the way the ocean flowed or something. Um, uh, yeah, it's, it's, two different two two different characters with, with at that point wanting different things. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, I, mean, I would say living with a character um, that might not have the same map as as yours, mm-hmm. or have different like um, priorities, for instance. Yeah, you know, just has practical implications. Um, and for me, the, in a sense, the two boys and what was going on there became uh, m- m- the priority for my character. Mm-hmm. Well, and it wasn't for your wife. I mean, usually mothers are very, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah the, the boys love their mum and the mum loves the boys. But, yeah. but there was a difference in the, in, in the dance that was happening. Yeah. Okay, I think that's clear. I won't press you for anything anything more in that area. Um, and so now you run this art gallery and um, in Wales, I guess. I, well, I'm, I'm more of a silent partner there now. Okay. I, I, don't, I don't have time, really. Oh, really? So you're just busy um, talking about the ocean and drinking tea? Yeah, lots of tea and, <laughs> and, the, and the boys. It's, um, so people came, like, 
before our conversation and people will come after our conversation. Um, what kind then, of people? You mean people with whom you sit as a, as a, a mentor? Or a, I don't know. We oh, just drink tea and chat. Buddies with your boys, that kind of people. No, we just drink tea and chat about the ocean and whatever okay. else. So you have a little um, open house and, and people come around and sit and chat and, and that keeps you pretty busy. Uh, yes, although I, I, I don't like the house being too open. Yeah, I know what you mean. <laughs> I suppose you, every now and then you rent a hall. <laughs> um, yeah, and uh, there's so much going on in the boys' lives at the moment. Sure. Especially Angelo, my youngest. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, it sounds exciting. I, ha I, I have a, my, my resources and my energies needed there as well. Yeah. A uh, kid could uh, support you in your old age, it sounds like, the rate he's going. <laughs> That's the plan, huh? <laughs> right now, let's see, there's about 130 people watching this, and they're probably all over the world. And after we've done this, people may want to get in touch with you. Do do Skype conversations with people and stuff like that um, from here? Yeah, I always used to, I always didn't like it. Mm -hmm. But the last year or so I've started because there's so many people from... I always used to love traveling about having cups of tea and meeting people. Mm -hmm. And coffee. Uh, yeah, and a coffee now, yeah, right. cappuccinos. Uh -huh. uh, but now it's impossible because people are from different countries and They're whatever. All over, yeah. So Skype is becoming much more, the, for me, the easiest way of doing it. Sure. Um, I mean, sometimes people ask me why I don't travel to see the people. So if I did that, it would be like England today and Tennessee last week and California the week before. I'd be on the road constantly. It's just, Skype is much easier. Yeah. <laughs> so the last few years, I've experienced that, basically, and I can't do that anymore. Yeah. Do you charge a certain amount for your time when you do Skype conversations? No, I don't charge, but sometimes people give money, sometimes. Yeah, sometimes you may need to or else you're going to have to turn people away because it's going to get so busy, you know? Well, I've for 40 years I've just chatted to people. Oh, well, uh, that's nice. But my, my, my boys tell me off sometimes. For spending so much time <laughs> chatting with people? Yeah. That's probably why you and your wife aren't together anymore. It's like, would you get off the phone? Or... Thank you, Rick. I figured it out. I can relate. Do you ever do any residential things, like little retreats and things? Yeah, I do that. I've done them in my home basically because I like them quite. Like what you outlined previously about sitting in front of an audience, I've always been reticent of that. Yeah. I, again, I just felt like meeting people across a table or having a cup of tea. Yeah, uh, I like to keep it informal. So, but it happens. It does happen more again because I can't. In one way, practically, it's easier to meet a lot of people in one go nowadays. Sure. Than individually. You know what a lot of people do, Paul, is they use this thing called Zoom. Have you ever used Zoom? 
and it, it enables you to have these sort of little webinars with 20 people or whatever at a time and it's better than Skype for that kind of thing for multiple yeah. people it's pr participatory you know yeah this last year is the first time people have contacted me and organized zooms yeah, yeah. and you see lots of different faces right I find it a bit weird to be honest but it's it's sort of a handy tool yeah but it's yeah, so that's beginning to happen as well. Okay, good. And in your experience, with all these chats and cups of tea and so on, have you noticed that there's a sort of a contagion? I mean, when you're talking to people, does it does it enliven something in them? Have have people that you've been interacting with for some time had awakenings? Has it stimulated that in them? I mean, what are people getting out of all these chats? And all this tea. Well, lots of lots of people come because they, they've had, for want of a better word, awakening. Uh -huh. And uh, a lot of times, uh, you know, that's it is being or has been problematic. Right. So you help them kind of come to terms with it. So some of the conversation can revolve around that. Yeah, that's good. But it's just a drunken conversation about love, really. Sure. Uh, and all the practical things that go around that. But that's a real valuable service. I think there's definitely a need for sort of post-awakening, a little bit of post-awakening hand-holding, you know, and helping people to get comfortable with what's happening to them. Well, it's, again, it's different for different characters, but for some characters it can, as you said, can be very unsettling. Yeah, yeah. And also there can be um, often quite a bit of fear because mm -hmm. um, you know it's very common that in the experience is almost like a sense that they were going to die or, or whatever yeah something uh, is going to die yeah sure. <laughs> um, something that never was right. but that's the panics I remember listening to, an, to this old monk and somebody in the garden was telling him about this experience and then, and or in the experiences, they were they were going to commit suicide, mm -hmm. but this was in a dream, mm -hmm. and he was he was digging up the grew vegetables and things, and he turned round to the, the the man and said, "Did you succeed?" And the man said, "No," and he looked at him and said, "Oh, pity," and carried on gardening again. Succeed in committing suicide? Yeah. Were they saying that literally or more like a... You know, no, in, in the dream, in the sense he was going to die. Right. So the old monk, in the context of our conversation, said, oh, you should have jumped. Yeah. Uh, and it would have been the end of something that never was. Right. And just to be to cover our bases here, we're not implying any kind of literal suicide. We're talking about the death of the <laughs> ego no. or the false sense of self. We're talking about the juice of aliveness. Right. Yeah. Which, so, which can't be measured. Hmm. Which, in that sense, was never born, which never began. So the whole concept of death or the end of a something just collapses. The whole of what we're talking about, really. I often say it's like meditation. Meditation, in a way, was designed to break time and space. Mm -hmm. It's designed to break something which isn't what it appears to be. 
it's designed to break an energetic lie that there are there is one thing separate from another thing. Yeah. So what what we're talking about is just a crazy drunken love affair that breaks time and space. Huh. It's funny you use the word drunken because I, I I interviewed a, a Sufi gentleman last week and the you know Rumi and Kabir and those guys often use that drunkenness as a metaphor for this sort of divine intoxication. For sure, I have a funny, funny thing, which which is a bit weird. If some people don't know me. The when I go to sleep, from those experiences as a teenager, something always happens, mm -hmm. um, and then there's there's just no body. Basically, there's no sense of an edge to the body. There's, mm -hmm. The body can't be found, and it's uh, and there's a lot of energetic stuff that goes on. Um, and then in, in the night, the body will wake up and it'll dance. Hmm. Now, wait a minute. So let me make sure what you're talking about here. So are you talking about some subtle thing? Or are you saying that if somebody were sitting in the room, they would see Paul get out of bed and start oh, dancing around? Oh, yeah. I'd, I'd be up out of bed dancing. And this actually happens every night? No, the experience. I wonder your wife loves you. Energetic experience. <laughs> it's not very good on a first date. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> if it happens. <laughs> so like a, two, three in the morning, you'll be up dancing around the bedroom. And it's, and it's literally like a drunkenness. Huh. It just, it's like, it just overflows in the body, basically. With energy. And makes, and makes the body dance. Interesting. You'll dance for what, five, ten minutes or something? You go take a pee and go back to bed? I or? don't really know. You don't really know? It's yeah. just something that happens? I don't, think, I don't think it goes on for a long, long time. Yeah. What kind of dancing is it? I mean, is it wild and crazy? Or is it more like the subtle Tai Chi kind of thing, or what? It's not crazy heavy metal stuff. No, okay. <laughs> it's... it's uh, more flowing kind of. Yeah, it's it's. I don't know. I've never thought that. What huh. kind of dancing? It's I'm just making you think just, about all kinds of things you hadn't thought about. Yeah, huh? I don't really know. Really, there's huh. just. You just set up a camera and tape it sometime. <laughs> Have it ready to go. <laughs> yeah. And I, I I don't know why it happens. It's just the same. You know, when I go to bed, it's always this same. This there was an experience when I was sixteen. I'd have this this sense to go and sit quietly, mm -hmm. and then I just learned to follow it. Basically, whenever that I had that sense, mm -hmm. and so if I was in the house, I'd just go up to my bedroom and sit on my bed. And this one time, I went up and sat on my bed, and this uh, um, just this it was a, a violet what I called a cloud mm -hmm. came into the room I went above the body um, and then I knew I had to lie down I don't know how I knew I just lay down and it just rained down yeah. onto the body uh -huh. and it was it was very energetically strong um, and then 
it was the first time that I had experienced that the edge of the body wasn't the edge that I thought it was, that the edge was also edgeless. Um, and then there was no sense of a separate body as a separate to, a, uh, to the wall over there or to the carpet mm. or to, to the bed. Um, and that happens every night since, basically. Does it happen um, with the, the violet thing every night? Or? Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. That's so interesting. Uh, I don't know what. I don't know. Yeah. It's just, it's just what the physiology does. I mean, I've had a couple of experiences in my life that were somewhat like that, and I attributed them, maybe it was just my interpretation, but I attributed them to some kind of celestial being or something. I mean, one time I was giving a talk in a room, and there were only two people in the room, and they were on kind of on either side, and I was looking to this person talking, and then listening to that, looking at that person and talking, and then all of a sudden this ball of light came into the room, and it was right in the middle. And it was it had, gave me the sense of being very conscious, as much as those people, if not more so. And we, I kind of looked at it and acknowledged, and and then there was sort of reciprocity, and then I went on talking. But I, I, I sort of felt like there was some kind of interest or intervention or curiosity or something from whatever that was that was checking out what I was doing, perhaps giving me more energy or wisdom or whatever in what I was doing. And I, I, when you told that story just now, I got, got that feeling like maybe, I mean, I have friends who routinely see sort of s s subtle beings like guardian angels or something around people, tending to them in ways which he, my friend doesn't even understand, but they're there. So I, I just wonder sometimes if we have some something like that in our lives that associates with us and, and serves as a... Um, some inspirational or influ influential kind of gu guide, you know? <laughs> Irene says, geez, spit it out. But hey, it took me a while to say that, but <laughs> I was trying to find the words, you know? But I suppose that would be all speculative and hypothetical for you, and you don't really know, is that right? Well, uh, the, the, in a sense, the brain always likes to know, so it'll always, it'll try to... Cook up stories, basically. yeah. yeah. But again, you know, whether I call, uh, describe a violet light or, or I say this body, it's the same ocean. Yeah. And that's that's the love affair. Mm. So it, it doesn't I, in the, for me. I don't care whether it's a blinking violet light or <laughs> cup of tea. Or yeah, or the archangel Gabriel or something. <laughs> yeah, it's or or somebody I I met earlier today. And chatted to. It was the same, for want of a better word, the same being, the same ocean. Yeah. The same, it's the same lover. That's good. I want to ask you another question about your sleep. And that is, when you go to sleep at night, when, well, pardon my phraseology because the words are limited, but when, when Paul lies down in bed, body goes to rest, there's some kind of, um, inner awareness, does the ocean remain awake to itself when the body begins to snore? Or are you totally blotto, are you gone? That luminosity is, is irrespective of, of waking, dreaming or sleep. Good. But that luminosity has nothing to do with it, 
the way I understand the awareness in the sense of one thing being aware of a, a different thing. Right. It's more imminent. It's more. It's before that sort of apparent movement happens. Yeah. And yet, and yet, is that movement of time and space simultaneously? The, literally, the form and the formless are not two things. Mm -hmm. Would it be accurate to say that when your body goes to sleep, the senses are shut down because that's what sleep is, and so therefore there's not going to be, you know, a, a, an active experience of a thing of any sort through any sensory apparatus, but that luminosity without experiencing things, continues on as it always does. Yeah, but in the sense that there's no sense of anything continuing? Because for because there to be a sense, you'd have to be sort of functioning mentally, like cognizant of it, which would be a, 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 an activity. And, and you're saying that everything has really resolved back into its primordial... Well, even in a sense prior to that, because Although this sounds a bit crazy, there's also it's self-evident that nothing was nothing began. Mm -hmm. It doesn't sound crazy at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But li literally, Rick, literally, mm -hmm. nothing, nothing has ever began. Nothing has ever been born. Yep. No. And yet, it doesn't negate that measurement called birth and movement and time and space and Paul and suns and yes. everything. And it's everything. Yeah, it's freedom. Mm -hmm. It's unconditional. Yeah, and you're certainly not the first to s person to say something like that. Ramana said that sort of thing and many others. And you can, you, know, you can say that, that nothing ever began, nothing ever happened. And then in the same breath, you can say, yes, but then all the, there's all this. And both are paradoxically, simultaneously true. And, and, it's, it's infinite. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's no edges to it. Mm. There's no measurements. And then we just get back. <laughs> it's... I think the Indians have an analogy about, is it a, a salt doll going to test how deep the ocean is? Yeah, yeah, I've heard that one. Right. Yeah, the, uh, when it walks into the ocean, it dissolves. Just dissolves, right. So the brain is a bit like that. You, you push it, as it were, this is all a, a bit of a story now, but you push it towards the ocean and it just dissolves. And then suddenly the ends and this begins to happen. <laughs> and then there's just what can't be measured, which paradoxically are, is simultaneously all measurements, mm -hmm. the whole of time and space. Yeah, I love that. And I love the way you're presenting it in a balanced way, because there's some people who just say the first part of it. You know, they say, there's only this and nothing ever happened. And then they don't kind of complete the, the thing to say, but then there's also everything happening. And so it just seems kind of lopsided and people kind of scratch their heads and say, yeah, but what about my job and what about this and that? Um, so, so it's kind of like the ocean can contain, you know, the whole panoply of diversity, apparent diversity, uh, without um, overflowing because it's infinite.
Of course, otherwise it wouldn't be free. Yeah, yeah. Do you ever feel any um, restriction or constriction or, or lack of freedom or, or even momentarily or um, does nothing disrupt that? But there's always luminosity, there's always this ocean mm -hmm. which can appear to be anything, you know, whether it's pain or I need to pay the bills. Or it can appear as anything. Does Anger. The, does the pain or anything else ever get so intense that the that the oceanhood is momentarily forgotten? Well, because it, no, because it's not a memory. Right. I had kidney st a kidney stone. Oh, that can be a very couple of years there. ago, and that was it hurt like hell. Yeah. That was real pain. <laughs> that was that was good pain. Yeah. And I could I couldn't stand up. I couldn't get onto my feet. Right. But that is it. Uh -huh. uh, <laughs> everything, Rick. It's just <laughs> those who are listening to the audio version of this and not seeing the video, Paul's making all sorts of interesting gestures like playing with his lips and putting his hand over his face and stuff like that. But I, I think you're conveying, conveying it beautifully and, uh, you know, it's just delightful, you know, having this virtual cup of tea with you and, and going on about this. There's a beautiful way in which you kind of dance around the, the whole topic and use words to say that which can't be said. You're doing a good job of it, I'd say. But, the, but the, because literally it, it does feel like a dance. Yeah, exactly. It's a gorgeous dance with nothing moving. Yeah. Another question has just come to mind. And that is that as time has gone on and you've been at this for decades now, Is there still a sense of growth and unfoldment in some respect? I mean, within the, the infinite freedom of the ocean, do you feel like certain capacities have become more and more rich, such as love, for instance, or sensory refinement or anything? I mean, do you feel like there's, that you're still a work in progress in some respect? I've got more grumpy. Oh yeah, okay, so you're regressing. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's yes. The answer, in a sense, is yes and no. Because uh -huh. that luminous, that freedom, that ocean is complete. is what it is. Yeah, it's, it's full. Yeah, even words like complete don't even touch yeah. it. Mm -hmm. I go sorry. I, and in that freedom, anything like senses can change, um, the sensitivities can change, mm -hmm. the physiology can change. Well, is there a direction to that change? I mean, would, would you define it as developmental in some way? Again, the answer is, is yes and no. But I do apologize. No, that's okay. I understand. But in a sense, you can create a map in your brain and it can appear to be 
that there's something developing. And it is, it's true. And true simultaneously, that sort of measurement. Yeah. What we're talking about is an utter paradox. Mm -hmm. It's an utter conceptual paradox. Yeah, but when you talk about paradox, you can say, you know, that, I mean, you can, if you're doing side B of the paradox, you can say, yes, and in this, the B side, there is sort of change, and the, the, the development seems to have a direction or tra trajectory, or, you know, things are getting better in this or that respect or something, whereas side A of the paradox, it's all just perfect, and nothing ever changes, and nothing ever happened, and so on. So, I mean, you can say so that. So, in that sense, it, it, in, in that sense, in freedom, there's nothing excluded. Right. So in that sense, it's and, 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 and. Yeah. And. And what? <laughs> Everything. Mm -hmm. The dance can, be, can appear as in any way it wants to. Right. And it can be a quiet or it could be a, a more um, sophisticated dance mm -hmm. or a more simple dance. But the, the 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 juice of the dance is the, is also the same in however it expresses itself. So it's different and not different simultaneously. Yeah. It's it's again it's this sense of the form and the formless are not two things. That movement and non-movement are not two things. Change and unchange are not two things. They're just measurements, apparent measurements, of something which can't be measured. Mm-hmm. You're a walking, talking Zen Cohen. <laughs> <laughs> uh, tea, tea drinking Zen Cohen. <laughs> coffee now, coffee. Coffee, yes. Tea and... I, I, I think I'm more sophisticated, I've been told. <laughs> yeah. Well, great. Well, this has been delightful. Um, I don't know if we're going to cover any fresh ground, or even if we have, because it's all the same ground, by continuing. It is and it isn't. Yes, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's, it's lovely spending a couple hours with you, just uh, carrying on like this. I've, I've, I'm, it's been a delightful experience. Okay, thank you, Rick. Yeah. Let me thank you, Irene. Oh, Irene, Paul says thank you. You're welcome, Paul. She, she says, you're welcome, Paul. <laughs> um, <laughs> No, she didn't. She just said, you're welcome, Paul. Um, so I just want to just make a couple of wrap-up points. You don't really have a functioning website at this point, I've noticed. You gave me a link to one, but it doesn't work. So maybe you'll get that fixed. But in, you do have a Facebook page, and I'll be linking to that. You haven't written any books, I don't believe. But I guess people can contact you through your Facebook page if they want to have a Skype chat or something like that, right? Yeah, or through the email that you used. Do, do you want me to put your email on, on your website page? Yeah. Okay. I tend not to be very good with social media. Okay. I, I, do, I do tend to check the emails. Alrighty, so I'll put your email uh, address on your BatGap page. Yes. And people can get in touch that way if they like. I'm not always the quickest in replying. Right. Okay. Yeah, we noticed that, but uh, we did get a hold of you. <laughs> 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 yeah. I apologize. 
Well, get, get ready for a bit of a deluge. You'll probably have a lot of people contacting you, so good luck with that. And then, in general, just to those who are listening or watching, this is an ongoing series, and there are several things you could do if you'd like to stay in touch. One is to subscribe to the YouTube channel that you're watching, if you're watching this on YouTube, and then YouTube will notify you when new interviews are posted. Another is to subscribe to my little email thing so that you'll get an email from us whenever a new interview is posted. And there's also the audio podcast if you like to listen to things rather than sit and watch. And if you subscribe to the podcast, then every time you open iTunes you'll or whatever you're using to listen to podcasts, you'll get each new episode as it becomes available. So there's those, and then there's some other things if you check out the various menus on batgap.com. So please do that, and um, we'll see you next week. Next week I'll be speaking with a gentleman who is in his 90s, who originally got in touch with us saying, I'm in my 90s, I've had both my feet amputated, and I'm, I've never been happier in my life. And uh, he was the designer of some of the original cars, like the Thunderbird and the GTO and, and some of those power cars in, in Detroit. He's also done all sorts of fascinating things in his life, but then he ended up having this profound spiritual awakening, and he's, you know, sharp as a tack and full of energy. So his, his name is John Sampson, and I'll be interviewing him next week. So stay tuned, and thanks for listening or watching, and thank you, Paul. It's been a joy, and uh, we'll be in touch. Thank you. You're welcome.